Hello, everyone. Welcome to Palladium Magazine's Digital Salon with Bruno Mascheish. I'm Wolf Tyvey, Editor-in-Chief of Palladium. I'm joined by Ash Milton, Managing Editor. Hey, guys. Nice to see you again. So our guest today is Dr. Bruno Mascheish. From 2013 to 2015, Bruno served as Portugal's Secretary of State for European Affairs. He is Senior Fellow at the Hudson Institute in Washington and the author of two recent books, The Dawn of Eurasia and Belt and Road. His new book, History Has Begun, The Birth of a New America, is available now. A new U.S. edition will be published this fall. Welcome, Bruno. It's a pleasure. Great to be here. So we're joined by our live audience of Palladium members. This conversation will be recorded and rebroadcast on YouTube and as a podcast. To become a Palladium member and get invited to upcoming salons, please visit palladiummag.com slash subscribe. Plan is for Ash, Bruno, and myself to have a discussion for about 45 minutes and then move to questions with the live audience. So for the audience, please be sure to use the Q&A function in Zoom to post your questions and upvote other people's questions. So I'll start with the first question. So Bruno, the thesis of your new book is that history has begun again. Um, and this is a reference to the end of history idea that has kind of gone around in American political discourse in recent decades. So what force is ending the end of history, so to speak, in America? The end of the end of history, right? Um, yeah. Well, I, I even suggest in the preface to the book that uh, perhaps it actually makes sense to talk about uh, the beginning of history, not the not that history is restarting, but actually it's beginning. Why, hmm. why does that make sense? Because, well, the discovery of history as, as a concept has been very slow and difficult. Um, you know, before the modern age and speaking in rough terms, uh, we used to think that uh, what was important was permanent. Nature was permanent. Um, uh, God's commandments were permanent. And it's really modernity that introduces human beings into the flux of history. But that discovery was almost immediately lost from view because you immediately try to subject history to a number of laws uh, and predeterminations and, and, and the logic and uh, a certain narrative of which, of course, Marxism is the best example. But not only we can talk actually about liberalism as being similar to this uh, in, in the fundamental ways. Right. Uh, and it's only really now, uh, and it's how I interpret the present, uh, that we preserve the idea of flux as being dominant, uh, the idea that nothing is permanent, uh, that nature doesn't really exist, um, not in the sense that it's beyond human control and beyond human mastery. But we also lost faith in these laws of history, these predeterminations, these uh, final destinations of historical movement. So I think it's actually quite interesting to turn um, Fukuyama on its head and, and actually say history is beginning now, not coming to an end uh, and beginning for the first time, really. But I should also say that Fukuyama is not really present in my book. I, uh, I didn't try deliberately to admit him, but I don't think it's, uh, it's mentioned a single time. And the reason is I really don't think that this is about Fukuyama. Uh, this is about modern liberalism uh, as a whole. If you read the classics of liberalism, uh, starting with, with Thomas Hobbes and, and, and John Locke and, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau and so on, you see that the end of history is there very clearly. Why? Because uh, there's a, a notion of political truth, of what a regime should look like. There's uh, some reflection about how to bring that regime about. There's the conviction that that regime will in time become universal. Uh, and there's the belief that there's nothing else after that. 
Uh, if you read John Locke, if you read the American founders, all of this is there. So you actually don't need Fukuyama. And in that sense, Fukuyama is uh, uh, repeating things that are present in, in the liberal tradition as a whole. It's not a surprise that, that he writes that kind of book when uh, it seems that uh, Locke's uh, project has finally been concluded. But it's Locke's project. It's not Fukuyama's project. Uh, and of course, in my book, I'm, I'm really trying to, to criticize that project as a whole and going back to the mm -hmm. origins of it uh, and not, not spending so much time with Fukuyama or, or no time at all, to be honest. Mm. So th that seems important there because it's not just that you're discussing the end of the end of history, but I, I think it's safe to say you approve of this event happening. Like you see this as a positive thing. Do you want to go a bit into like why you're taking this stance, why you see, you know, you, you also discuss how Europeans at a certain point were prone to seeing even America itself as just representing the end of their history. You see this as a mistake too. Um, so why is it a good thing that history is beginning? So I've, I've always been interested in, in this idea of uh, what, what comes after, what do we have now, what comes after, uh, after the, the current framework, the current doctrine, the, the current dogma, if you want. And part of that is, is, of course, that I find that the most exciting and most interesting question that we can ask. Might as well ask it then. But it's also, I was talking to, some, to another podcast recently about this. Uh, uh, I come originally from uh, political philosophy and in particular from the history of political thought, as you probably could guess already from the first answer. And I'm still attracted to those ideas, even though I've, I've moved away from them. But that's where I, where I got my PhD and where I was interested in my late 20s. And actually, if you come from that kind of environment, the idea of historical change is almost obvious because what you have when you study the whole canon, Plato, Aristotle, St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, Machiavelli, Hobbes, and so on, what you have is this idea of, uh, of uh, recurrent revolutions uh, where the paradigm changes completely. You almost right. start from scratch. There's nothing in common really between Plato, Aristotle, St. Thomas, Machiavelli, um, there's a sense that uh, nothing is final. Uh, and if, if, you, if you come from there, I think it would be the same if you came from the f history of science and philosophy of science. Um, uh, Thomas Kuhn uh, is, in a way, the, the best uh, example of that way of thinking. But if you come from that tradition, then it doesn't make sense to you to, to admit that we've come to an end uh, and that what do we have now and the, the set of beliefs that we have now are are going to be permanent. Uh, you really don't take this seriously to begin with. So I sometimes wonder if there's also an element of, uh, of just where, where I started thinking about these things. Uh, and so in the current moment, um, there's many ways to think about uh, what comes after liberalism. And I kind of uh, sense that all my books are different answers to this question. So obviously I was very interested in China because it seemed to me, and I think it seems to many people, that it's quite possible that one alternative to liberalism is, is being developed and, and, and conceived in China mm -hmm. today, in contemporary China, and certainly never believed that China was, was moving towards liberalism or converging with, with liberalism. Then the most recent book um, asks the question from a different standpoint, a more provocative one, that perhaps actually there's an alternative to liberalism being conceived in America uh, where one would think that liberalism was reigning, that perhaps it's actually in America that liberalism will be replaced by something else. Uh, and then uh, in, in, in a future book, I'm sure I'm going to look to 
the possibilities of uh, a different kind of state uh, being created by by technology. I think one, if one looks at um, the most important technological developments of our time, one way to think about them is actually the creation of a completely new kind of state, of political state, uh, from uh, Bitcoin mm -hmm. to Ethereum to uh, internet platforms. Um, that seems to be also another way to think about an alternative to liberalism being um, developed in the, uh, among the technologists. Uh, so all my books and all my projects turn out to be about, about this, um, this question, this recurrent question of well, where are we going and uh, can we think about it already? Is it uh, too soon to think about these things or is it actually the right time to think about it? Mm -hmm. I think that probably a good place to start would be looking at your criticism of liberalism itself, like dive into why now might be the time. So one of the provocative points you make uh, in the book and, and that you made elsewhere is that liberalism promises progress, but it has this tendency to actually develop stability, uh, which nowadays might be synonymous with stagnation. So why does it seem like the most interesting things right now, uh, technologically and politically, are happening outside the liberal paradigm? And maybe explain a bit why liberalism has this tendency toward desiring stability in the end. Uh, liberalism wants to establish a, a, a safe, a stable society where individuals have their own sphere of freedom that is protected from conceivably every threat. Uh, and this obviously uh, requires that one does not run any risks uh, of endangering this stable framework. John Rawls called it explicitly a stable framework. So everything that can be a threat to it, everything that can um, conceivably lead to a form of authoritarianism is uh, by definition uh, dubious. Uh, and that includes religion, because we know from historical experience that religion can very quickly lead to theocracy. It includes, obviously, political ambition. Uh, it include, includes inequality in many respects. Uh, and this already shows that liberalism will necessarily have a tendency to neutralize the most interesting and exciting areas of human life. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's because never... of fragility, I guess. Like, th there is this over time, this delicate structure of rights and protections of various kinds and legitimizations for liberal states get developed. And so as new disruptions come about, uh, there's an in increasingly big structure that could come crashing down, essentially. Right. Okay. So liberalism wants to create a society where everyone has a maximum area of freedom. Um, but all this is almost like an architecture project, and, and you're always aiming to create a perfect society where these spheres of freedom are at that maximum expansion. But then the problem obviously is, do you allow pre people to use their freedom? Once they start to use their freedom, um, the perfect structure of society starts to be destabilized. Um, you start to create areas of inequality, you start to create areas of, of power, you start to create areas of risk. Uh, in a way, it's almost like an architect that designed a perfect house, but then you cannot allow people to have fun inside that house because everything they do is going to potentially destroy the uh, mm -hmm. the architecture of the place uh, and and the beauty of the place. I mean, this in a way is is is, is a description of the problem of liberalism. 
so we talked about religion, we talked about ambition. Those are important, but those have been recognized and uh, uh, every anti-liberal movement of the 20th century was very interested in, in this uh, potential clash between liberalism and religion, between liberalism and ambition. I think in our time we have a much more serious uh, clash and that's the clash between liberalism and technology. Uh, and that's potentially a, a much more difficult clash for liberalism to, uh, to overcome. What is the clash between liberalism and technology? I'm not even sure I have to go into that with, with this audience, but uh, we see a lot of it every day and it's becoming clear uh, that um, technology creates uh, excessive power in certain areas of society. Uh, technology creates inequality. Technology disrupts the basic institutions of society. Uh, from separation of power to the market to uh, uh, the public sphere, free inquiry, um, truth, facts, and so on. Technology is accused of disrupting everything that is sacred for a liberal society. But obviously, if the clash is in fact serious, um, and if liberalism ends up winning, uh, it will nonetheless come out of that, of that clash in a very fragile position because other societies, non-liberal societies, uh, will embrace technology with, with a lot more enthusiasm. And we know that those societies that embrace technology uh, come out on top at the end. Uh, yeah. So I think and this probably is um... a, a mortal threat to liberalism in our time. Mm -hmm. Well, and in a way, right, like I, I agree, we, a lot of the, stories we covered palladium have to do right. with the rise you know not only of technology in the west but also materially and technologically advanced regimes outside the west you know in china and central asia and other places that where the fork away from liberalism seems to be happening but it is strange almost to me to think how quickly this separation between material progress and liberalism has happened because of course it used to be uh, in, in the Cold War, right up until the 2000s, liberalism was synonymous with the system that developed this great material progress where you had technological advancement. And so I wonder, given your analysis, if we look at the story that liberalism tells about its expansion, about Western expansion and so on, do you think it's telling the right story? Like, was there a sort of vital era of liberalism or was there actually some kind of non-liberal logic that we have missed that actually drove the progress and innovation in our history? Right. I've started to think a little bit about this, and I think it would be a very interesting essay to write uh, or a book for, for someone to write. Um, obviously, people like Peter Thiel and, and Tyler Cohen have, uh, have pointed out that at some, at some moment, uh, and you know, the 70s seems to be the consensual uh, date for this, uh, technology stopped uh, uh, developing at least at the same pace in Western societies. Mm. Uh, and that's, you know, by coincidence or not, I would suggest it is not a coincidence, is also the period where liberalism becomes completely dominant, right. hegemonic in our societies. Because until then, liberalism was still struggling to, to become hegemonic and fighting other, other ideas, other social movements. Uh, it may just be the case, it's uh, an hypothesis, but it may just be the case that um, um, throughout the 18th, 19th century, uh, liberalism was growing as an ideology and transforming society, and technology was growing alongside liberalism, and perhaps in a way taking advantage of the disruption and taking advantage of the conflict of ideas happening 
uh, in West. Definitely current critiques are not the first to come onto this idea. You know, we get Marxists as well from, from the conception actually of Marxism in the 19th century when this process is still going on that propose that the economic progress that's happening and the political system are only in a temporary alliance. Uh, yeah. And so yeah. almost every, I think almost every ideological analysis that comes after the era of liberalism ends up in some way having to deal with why was it so successful? And the honest ones, I think, do propose that, uh, you know, it, it, even if perhaps it itself was not a cause, it was at least an outcome or like functionally in alliance with the productive energies of that time. And so that critique is extremely powerful. And it's almost surprising to me that more movements in America and in the Anglosphere did not make it. It's more common to see this in places where there are like stronger Marxist movements, say, or yeah. well, the, uh, the, other ideologies. Yeah, I mean, one one reading of sort of the 1970s moment is like, like I think what Bruno was getting at was sort of this victory of liberalism over its alternatives and, and in particular, perhaps over the technological impulse itself. Um, and I, I, I want to ask him another question on that front, just about kind of the the sort of overall development direction implied by technology versus the stability demanded by liberalism. Right. So I think uh, I think when when I got disconnected, I was almost uh, finishing the idea. Um, um, in some respects, uh, we see today the same kind of conflict that occupied liberalism for two hundred years. Uh, uh, with religion, we see it being being repeated with with technology, mm -hmm. and the problems are in a way quite similar. and And they show, I think, this is relevant to point out, uh, that shows that uh, in a way the problem was not with religion, uh, but perhaps the problem was with liberalism. Uh, and in, in in that sense, even the old conflict between liberalism and religion is being reopened. It's it's helping show us that that uh, that liberalism is perhaps not as capacious as uh, originally intended. Obviously, uh, the appeal of liberalism at the very beginning was that it made everything possible. Um, it was never a promise of material prosperity. It was a promise of uh, uh, endless possibilities for human life. Uh, you could be everything in a liberal society. You could be Torquemada, you could be Caesar, you could be a captain of industry, you could be an explorer, a scientist. Uh, everything was allowed, every opinion was allowed. This idea that uh, liberalism could potentially include every human possibility was what made it a, such a powerful idea. And by the way, this is what made it universal. Uh, right. And potentially universal because liberalism was such a capacious framework that every culture potentially even every civilization could be absorbed under it. And you could have liberalism in China, you could have liberalism in India, even though the cultures and the ways of life were so different. So uh, uh, these recurrent conflicts and now the conflict with technology is in a way showing that, um, uh, that liberalism is much less open mm -hmm. and much less flexible than we used to think. Yeah, well, I mean, in a way like that, there's that fundamental impulse that you were describing of like creating this sort of space of personal freedom for the individual and creating this notion of the individual um, as the sort of like self-oriented actor. And then and then like clamping down on anything that sort of threatens that 
domain and threatens that setup, even to the point of like, you know, not allowing people to use certain freedoms that, that might kind of, you know, grow out of control in that way. And, and then like it, the, the impulse against technology is something, again, I want to, I want to sort of follow up on here because like technology kind of has implied in it, this, this, it is very disruptive, right? It's like, there's new ways to do things. We're kind of going to come up with new ways of doing things. It's going to lead to this sort of total reorganization of life every now and then, uh, new modes of power and so on. And, and it's, it demands almost in a way this like very conscious, uh, or at least this is one reading, it demands like a very conscious collective effort towards some kind of larger developmental goal. And that, that itself liberalism kind of recognizes as, as like a, a hostile, hostile impulse. And so I guess one reading of, of the seventies is, is sort of the, around that time, the, the victory of liberalism over perhaps even the, the sort of technological impulse within society. Right. And, uh, you know, liberal philosophy even had a certain theory of, of the self, uh, of, of the human personality. It was supposed to be in a certain way, it was supposed to be in control, in form, rational, deliberative, right. uh, individualistic, separate from others, and so on and so forth. And obviously, technology uh, creates such enormous possibilities for the human self to the point where humanity can even be replaced by a higher form of intelligence. Uh, how did we expect, it's borderline insane that we expected technology to be fully compatible with liberalism when liberalism had such a, a rigid theory of, of the human self. Uh, right. And now, of course, we're on the cusp of, uh, of um, technological changes that uh, put everything in, into question. Uh, but this is obviously, I think in America, it's, it's, it's particularly acute, you know. I when I talk to people in Silicon Valley, it's starting to, to seem to me that you have almost the rudiments of a civil war in the United States. It's a civil war between uh, sort of the progressive left and, and technology. And it's becoming increasingly more difficult to, for, for the two camps to live together. Uh, the conflict between, between Silicon Valley and the New York Times is an example of this, but illustrative. Uh, and I also wonder, you know, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll talk a bit about China today. Uh, in a way, the question might become um, who is better able to lead this confrontation with China? Is it going to be the progressive left in the United States or, or is it going to be technology? Um, and whoever is more confident and more able to present to the American people the, the, the essential strategy of, uh, of, of, of an increasing confrontation with China is probably going to come out on top. Uh, but right. the conflict I'm talking about between liberalism and, and technology is not, not just an abstract consideration. You know, as an, as an external observer looking at America today, I see it everywhere. It seems to be one of the most interesting uh, developments in American life in the past few years, how this conflict has come to the surface. Well, this, this brings us to something else that you've said, which is that despite sort of being liberal and dominating the liberal world for, you know, the past 70 years or so, America seems to you uh, much more ready to take a leap of faith beyond the sort of end of history liberalism than, for example, Europe is, and, and that we are actually on the cusp of a transition to some new post-liberal society in America. Um, what do you think is driving that transition, and, and what would it look like? 
Right. I'd said, uh, you know, I, I would even say, and this is a, a bit more uh, open to discussion, but certainly more, there's more conviction in the U.S. About, about testing new possibilities than in Europe. But one might even argue that there's more conviction about that in the U.S. than in China. Um, because right. one of the things one of the things you realize if you live in China is that um, it's sort of the the ideological apparatus is still heavily influenced by Western ideas. Uh, they try emotionally to resist them, but they don't quite have anything uh, ready to to replace liberalism. Uh, so that if you probe uh, a Chinese academic or intellectual for for a, a considerable amount of time, he will end up. Uh, having recourse to liberal ideas or Western ideas, uh, there simply isn't a reservoir of alternative ideas available. Uh, so once you get over the initial resistance to copy something that comes from the West, you see that many of these people were educated in the West and in Western universities. So it may actually be the case, and it's paradoxical as it may sound, uh, that the, the United States is embracing a post-liberal world with more enthusiasm and conviction than even China, which is really extraordinary. But yes, I think we see it in America today. We see it everywhere. We see it in the far left, in the woke left. We see it with Trump. Uh, we see it in technology. We see it in religion. Uh, we see a kind of a drive against uh, some basic liberal ideas uh, all over American society. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we, we can take them in turn, um, but certainly uh, the, the, the question here is, uh, to what extent uh, can this rebellion against liberalism in America be turned into something new uh, and into something coherent? Because um, there's, of course, many people uh, in America today, and that's also very interesting and surprising to me, you know, if we had discussed this 10 years ago. There's many people in America today that are turning towards the past. Uh, You know, there's a a group of people, a group of of, uh, highly respected scholars. They are recovering the Catholic tradition, and I think you know Mm -hmm. whom I'm uh, referring to, uh, Harvard Law professor and... uh, and a, a famous political theorist, uh, there are try- a New York Post uh, uh, editor, trying to recover a orthodox uh, Catholic tradition. There mm. are people, of course, um, uh, and connected to, um, uh, to, 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 to the technology sector and to some uh, people in the technology sector that are trying to recover a kind of uh, conservative, reactionary, uh, perhaps with some hints of authoritarianism, uh, mm-hmm. that kind of mm-hmm. tradition. Uh, and this is done with, with great creativity, but in the end, this is no more than a return to the past. And these things have been tried, and they have been tried in Europe. Uh, and by the way, they lost to liberalism. Mm-hmm. So what I try to do in the book, and honestly, I don't uh, have any illusions that the book is anything definitive, is just the beginning of a conversation. But what I try to do in the book uh, is try to present something that comes after liberalism, not something that came before. We, we shouldn't go back in time to what existed before liberalism, to these Catholic or reactionary ideas. Right. Let's try to build something that comes after, and not just chronologically, but something that actually incorporates liberalism, that learns from liberalism, that tries to overcome its flaws, Mm-hmm. Uh, but but something that is genuinely post-liberal and something that is better than liberalism. Uh, 
Right. I mean, this is this is exactly like the the philosophy that we actually launched Palladium on. You know, our founding essay two years ago uh, towards the post-liberal synthesis is exactly this idea that like we need to move beyond liberalism as we've imagined it, salvage the good points, and and really build on it philosophically into something that corrects its flaws and, and can really like open up the next frontiers. Yeah, I think this is an important distinction to make. Right, but what makes a tendency, uh, what makes something like what is happening in China now post-liberal to me is not the fact that it's it has technology and exists outside the liberal order, right? It's that they have a very coherent, you know, maybe we can critique the specifics, but it's a coherent analysis of why liberalism worked and an attempt to take the parts that worked um, but sort of rescue them from their stagnant forms, right? So a post-liberal viewpoint will essentially be, you know, it, it, there's a reason we say it's a, it, that it's a synthesis. We're not negating liberalism. Liberalism cannot be negated. History does not work like this. Um, rather, you are taking a process that is complete and then going into a different stage, Um I would actually like to bring up something that hasn't been mentioned yet, which is the appearance of like uh, guardians maybe of liberalism. So my example here would be President uh, Macron in France, who recently talked about, you know, he invoked this idea of a civilization state and of a European civilization state. But his definition of what a European civilization state would be is the defense of kind of humanist liberalism, essentially. And there's this possibility of maybe harsh or anti-human tendencies in, in technology or, you know, liberalism sees threats to human dignity and so on in illiberal or in post-liberal uh, ideas. Do you think that there's a coherent way that those concerns will cause people to rally to the sorts of things that Macron and his allies represent? Or do you think that like even these sort of positive, protective humanist ideas will translate over into a post-liberal synthesis? Right. No, I agree with you. This is how I, that's how I see Macron. Uh, he certainly has, uh, uh, and I'm puzzled that, that this is not more widely recognized. He certainly has a civilizational approach to, uh, to world politics. Uh, I think he basically sees the world as divided between five or six uh, main civilizations, Islam, uh, Europe, uh, China, India, and I'm convinced he thinks of America and Europe as essentially separate civilizations. Um, mm -hmm. So Europe has to protect itself from uh, China, which he, he has taken up that, um, that challenge. Uh, he has to protect itself from Islam, and I think he's uh, most of the time rather obsessed about this, and also to protect itself from, from America, uh, American power, and, and this comes through in his defense of a European army or an autonomous European foreign policy. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a, there's a difficulty here which may or may not be solved, uh, but to try to preserve liberalism as a, 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 not a universal but a a specifically European civilization is going to be very difficult because the appeal and the force of liberalism was that it, it was universal or it aspired to be universal. Mm -hmm. uh, if you now say, well, we still believe in these ideas, but we just believe that they are ours, 
and they are valid, but they are only valid in Europe. They're certainly not valid anywhere else. And we don't even aspire to export them to China or to India or to America, and they're taking their own paths. Uh, it seems difficult that the, the, those liberal ideas, rarefied as they are, uh, rather formal, rather empty, uh, that they just allow for uh, possibilities, but they don't tell you how to live. It seems unlikely that those ideas can survive once they are accepted as a parochial, as limited to, to a specific region or, or a specific time. So I think that will be the challenge. It's not like everything is going to remain the same once you give up the universal aspirations of, uh, of these liberal ideas, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, Macron has been difficult. called kind of a Bonapartist, but the thing is that you know what Bonaparte represents is the enlightenment on the march uh, w- mm-hmm. without the missionary impulse uh, to guide th- that kind of project. Uh, it suddenly loses a lot of its force, especially when the European Union already exists. You know, most of these European countries are already in this political order that's at least nominally founded on these humanist liberal ideas. So there is almost not much left to do if if one takes that stance, apart from maybe shore up uh, the defenses or the reactions right. to it within its borders. He certainly has been talking about about protection as the as the ultimate. Uh, political value, um, and um, yeah, he's been embroiled in a number of problems that immediately arise if you take this civilizational approach. Because if we, if we're interested in protecting and preserving European civilization, then the question is, who is a part of this? Who is a part of this European civilization, and who is not? Right. And this is a project that is almost necessarily destined to fail. Um, because uh, the borders are not clear, uh, very delicate. Uh, problems are raised, for example, respecting Russia. Uh, is Russia part of European civilization or not? And how can a politician answer these questions? These questions are, they don't have a clear answer. They, they may be debated for a long time um, and, and people will have different opinions. Um, so he's not being very successful in terms of defining the, sort of the borders and the limits of this European civilization. He does seem to believe that Turkey is not part of it and that Perhaps Russia can be, not immediately, but in the future. But all this is extremely difficult, especially for a country that is that is not by any means dominant in Europe, to impose these, these views on everyone else. Um, many people in Europe uh, are much more interested in working with Turkey than in working with Russia. Um, but Macron seems to insist deliberately on, on, on the opposite view and try to convince everyone of this. Well, you served as Portugal's Secretary of State for European Affairs um, and, and have been traveling in elite circles for the last decade. So from, from that perspective, how do you see sort of like, like the, the ideas happening in diplomacy right now? Are they dominated by, still dominated by the, these kind of like end of history managerialism sort of ideas? Or is that, uh, is it making way for something else? Is it going to change? Um, how do you see the development specifically sort of from, the, from that perspective? Like, where's it going? Right. Um, there's a lot, of, the, 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 there's a lot of, of developments taking place. Uh, ideas are not very important, uh, less than in the past, um, because, uh, you know, the, the communication vessels between uh, politics and academia have been almost completely broken. Uh, that was not true in the past. Uh, so a figure like Kissinger is, is difficult to imagine today. There's uh, bureaucrats have taken over. Um, politicians are 
of a different kind, uh, certainly less interested in, in grand strategy or geopolitics. So I, th- I think, you know, I, 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 it's difficult to know for sure, but I think even uh, leaders of autocracies like uh, Xi Jinping or, or Putin, um, all I know about Putin is that he's actually someone that is not particularly interested in grand theories. People tell me that what he reads uh, compulsively is the, the the reports from the intelligence services, uh, and that's the only thing he really enjoys to read. So clearly, ideas are not very important, but that doesn't mean that nothing is happening. There's uh, the question of China; it's becoming more and more important by the day. Uh, there's the political revolution happening in America that we talked about. There's the future of Europe, uh, which continues to be an incredibly ambiguous question. And I go back and forth with this question. It's very difficult to decide whether Europe might actually survive the turmoil of these decades uh, as a, a beacon of stability or whether Europe is heading for a political and geopolitical disaster. Uh, it's a, uh, I think it's an extraordinarily ambiguous question and very difficult to decide. And the evidence points in, in opposite directions. But these three questions, at least, uh, are calling for a decision. One has to know whether China will continue to rise and overcome the United States. One has to know whether what is happening in the United States is a collapse or a rebirth, which is the topic of my book. And one has to know whether Europe has developed a sustainable model or whether it is really not sustainable without a common army without investment in defense, without a common foreign policy. So these questions will be as big as they, as they can get, and they will be defined and decided uh, very soon or over the next 10 years. So obviously, even though ideas are not in charge, uh, there's a lot to think about, a lot to talk about, a lot to write about. I think that before the Q&A, I would like to touch on China briefly. There's a lot we can go into here, and we'll probably go into more uh, in the second part of the discussion. But maybe just as a starting question, the relationship between China and liberalism here is interesting, especially with the party going to pretty great lengths to theorize of itself as non-liberal. And so China has thrown itself, on the other hand, into this economic growth through the trade systems that the liberal powers set up. But there's this other interesting tendency where you've talked about how liberalism becomes obsessed with stability. It fears instability. China, likewise, though, has a strong fear of instability, rather, uh, maybe on slightly different grounds. So given that, I'm interested if you think that China's path could ultimately resemble Europe's uh, in the sense that maybe its need for stability at some point, maybe when it has this stronger, wealthier population, um, that the need for political stability will start to outpace its tolerance for economic or social disruption the way we have seen in Europe. Well, it's, it's a difficult question, and uh, we, can, we can look at it from, from different sides. You know, my experience in China, I, I lived there last year for a year, is, is slightly different. Um, so, of course, I would agree with you that there is a, a certain drive to stability, but let's framework, for example, of the Soviet Union, because we, we're really not talking about that. It's a society that it has embraced technological change uh, with, with real gusto. Uh, it's a society where, you know, there's some banners, propaganda banners on, in Beijing on the streets uh, with the slogan, uh, uh, let go of the old, embrace the new. 
And the immediate purpose of those banners is to convince people to accept these uh, uh, ur urbanism projects that uh, demolish the old uh, Wutongs and uh, and, and uh, build new um, uh, streets and, uh, and and compounds. But it goes beyond that. Then it goes back to Mao and the idea of destroying the old. It's a society where there's a lot of dynamism. It's a society where there's competition, uh, there's ambition. Uh, of course, people have to stay out of politics, um, but that doesn't mean uh, it's a, in some respects it's similar to the United States. It's a society where everyone, a young man, a young woman, wakes up in the morning uh, expecting to be a millionaire by the end of the day. It's a society where technology is in charge. Um, they do subscribe to this strict Marxist idea that the engine of history is technology and not politics. It's the means of production. Mm -hmm. And so, ironically, by embracing dynamism in the technological sphere and by limiting dynamism in the political sphere, if Marx is right and change comes from technology, it's a society that is open to change, even though it is close to change in the political arena. Open to con they might contradiction too, perhaps. In, in what sense? So, for example, although China has implemented a very well, a, a fairly coherent ideology of planned markets, especially when it comes to really significant innovation. Uh, there, There is this natural tension here between the power of markets to act and the central plan. And I think that, um, you know, when I've talked to people looking at Chinese theory about this, this is not only recognized within China's economic theory, but it's actually a feature. Uh, they see these contradictions as actually being a driving force Right. Uh, in society and in history. So uh, Tanner Greer wrote something about this um, at Palladium. So uh, a contradiction can be desirable uh, at this point in China's history, though I'm not sure whether it will be able to permanently hold that position. Yes, that is also a classical Marxist thought that you accept and embrace the contradictions. Of course, they pick and choose between the contradictions and they pick the ones that, that they, uh, they, they feel confident that they can master. Uh, and not the ones that, that are more difficult to master. Uh, but you do hear that a lot in the official speeches. Uh, uh, the contradiction that uh, they regard as the fundamental contradiction of, of contemporary China is the contradiction between the means of production and the desires and aspirations of the consuming class. Uh, so the economy still does not produce everything that people want to have. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a productive contradiction to explore, uh, and it's explored through intensified growth and intensified technological development. Uh, but that's the contradiction they think they're navigating, but they never get into other areas that might be more delicate to master and, and, and never uh, openly discuss those other contradictions, which may be discussed in private. Uh, but, uh, you know, we probably don't have enough time to, to discuss China in detail. Sure. Well, but, we'll uh, probably get into it in the Q&A as well. In the Q&A, okay. So I, I would be interested to hear just uh, fine, like, when it comes to America, you've pointed out these embryonically post-liberal currents in its society. What do you think America's comfort level with contradiction is? It's there. It's never as clearly explained because, of course, the ruling ideology is not, it's not Marxism-Leninism, but the contradictions are there. I think the... I see America, let me finish with this because it's almost the central idea of the book. I see America as trying to solve one specific contradiction. And we talked a lot about it, so this is a good way to finish. Uh, 
So liberalism neutralizes many spheres of life and reduces the intensity of many uh, experiences of human life. Something that is obviously in contradiction with human aspiration because, you know, as I point out in the book, uh, it's, it's quite interesting to, to notice uh, this contradiction, which I think is the American contradiction uh, that Americans are interested in exploring. Between a politics that is interested in reducing conflict that is interested in uh, preserving human freedom, that is interested in a number of political virtues, that is limited, interested in uh, law-abidingness, and uh, an entertainment system and a news system that is interested precisely in the opposite. Uh, what um, what uh, is discussed in, 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 in the news is uh, the sexual exploits or Barbie Weinstein, all kinds of perversions, space exploration, if you turn to entertainment, you see the same. Uh, so it's certainly a schizophrenic society in the sense that in politics, we do not allow for any extreme experiences. Even Trump is too extreme, even though Trump is not a dictator, but even Trump looks like a dictator to the liberal consensus. But then when you turn to news and entertainment, we are interested in those extreme experiences. So how do we solve this contradiction? And I think uh, American society, uh, as I see it, has come out, come out with a very ingenious solution to this contradiction, which is to allow for the full range of human experience, but to allow for it at the level of virtual reality and not at the level right. of reality. It's sort so of a everything park. can be, exactly, America is a theme park. Everything can be simulated, everything can be rehearsed. So one can have the Chinese Cultural Revolution in Portland or Seattle, and one can have a fascist dictator in Donald Trump, but they're not supposed to actually become a fascist dictator or to actually become Mao's Cultural Revolution. They're just supposed to be uh, a LARP. Spectacle, uh, yeah. Role-playing mm -hmm. spectacle. Now, uh, this would be criticized by many people, of course, uh, especially if they're still committed to the old way of looking at things. But you have to recognize that it's a very ingenious solution to the problem. Particularly if you have uh, sufficient immersion in the experience, it's almost like having the real thing without the dangers of the real thing. Also true of religion, because uh, religion in America is experienced with su such a level of immersion that it's almost like religion in Iran but without the danger of actually being ruled by theocrats uh, or being ruled by, by Sharia law. Right. Uh, you have the best of both worlds wow. in America. But this is just a long way to, to answer the question of what is the contradiction. There is actually a contradiction. And it's a contradiction between politics of safety and uh, the aspiration towards extreme experiences. And I think America is actually in the process of trying to solve it. Interesting. I think on that note, we should jump to the Q&A. Uh, Wolf, do you want to get... Yeah, started? sure. I'll, I'll take the first one. So Vitalik Buterin asks, uh, regarding liberalism versus technology, one of the things I've been noticing recently is the growing deterioration of the view towards technology in science fiction. Uh, so, for example, the techno-optimism in 1960s Star Trek versus Black Mirror and dystopian narratives now. Yeah. It would be interesting to hear your thoughts on where sci-fi is going and where it could go. This is all very related to sort of this whole question of spectacle as well. Uh, no, absolutely. I, I, I can only agree. It's very striking. You know, if this hasn't been explored and written about, it should be. Uh, it's not surprising, particularly if you agree with what I said before. Uh, you know, remember also that uh, science fiction and uh, science fiction in the, in, on, on television, in the movies and 
and in print uh, is written not by uh, uh, technologists. It's written by people that come from the humanities. And so it's essentially written by people who have uh, uh, subscribed and, and been raised within kind of a liberal environment. So it's not surprising that they, when they turn towards uh, 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 writing about technology and writing about the future of technology, writing science fiction, it's not surprising that they, they take a skeptical uh, tone towards it. But it's really quite remarkable. I think it would be very difficult today to find a, a, a genuinely optimistic view of technology in, in science fiction. I, uh, I can't think of anything. It would probably be derided and ridiculed uh, by by reviewers uh, uh, and, and, and by many readers. Uh, uh, today, the educated opinion seems to be that only bad things can come out of technology and everything else is, is regarded as extremely naive. I'll move on to another question. So from Chelsea, what is your recommended methodology for investigating um, sort of the ideological changes we're talking about and how they're playing out in the world? So put another way, what tools do you use? What information evidence do you look for? And what do you find the most compelling when doing this kind of work? Right. Yeah, good question. Um, uh, well, you have to read a lot, but, but you have to read in a certain way. Uh, you know, you have to, to go beyond uh, uh, the way of reading as a student. I think this is a skill that, that should be taught more often. You know, we're taught how to read uh, in a very disciplined way. You know, we're taught to we're taught to to read and 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 to study uh, in school, but then we have to get rid of those habits uh, and not read and study in a disciplined way. So you have to pick up a book and and just scan through it, uh, look for what you what you're interested in, and uh, and and not be fixated on the rest. You have to consume uh, uh, huge amounts of information, but in a very critical and very utilitarian way. Let me put it that way. So it's important to do that with, for example, what's being written in contemporary China by Chinese authors. Always read uh, those authors. If you're deliberately looking for how do, how do Chinese authors think about these problems in a different way from Western authors, there's nothing better than to consume huge amounts of literature, but do it in a very utilitarian way. If you're reading, reading something and, and you're not getting anything different from what you'd get from a Western liberal author, just move on. But eventually you'll find something interesting that will get your brain working. Uh, talk to people on the ground, you know, long conversations with intelligent uh, uh, people in China or in India or in many other places. They are struggling with these problems. Uh, again, with a kind of detective approach where you're looking deliberately for entries into a different way of thinking. So it's important to have a two-hour conversation, and at some point, there's going to be a clue to a different world, a different way of thinking. And then you have to push against that clue and really uh, flesh it out as much as you can. Uh, and never miss those, uh, those clues and those opportunities. Um, so that, that's, that's basically my approach, to sort of very deliberately uh, force yourself to think in a different way. Traveling is important. You know, it helps if you do both at the same time, as I did for my first book, then that's ideal. If you're traveling in China and reading Chinese literature, Chinese political philosophy. Uh, but of course, traveling is not going to monuments. It's, it's trying to meet as many people as possible, as many interesting people as possible and have discussions. Uh, it's, it's not going to the local market or going to see museums are, are good, but not going to see a, 
a monument. It's not how you're going to learn about uh, different ways of thinking and different ways of reacting to the world. Mm. I'm interested to hear to what extent uh, your career in diplomacy and government changed your method of uh, how you go about your research. Like, did you, for example, find books less useful or did you actually find them more useful? Things like that. Well, the good thing about being in government, in particular being in some of uh, some high-level meetings where I, I would be with our prime minister or, or representing our prime minister, uh, it's just that you become aware that uh, what's happening there is really not that important in the sense that it's very bureaucratic uh, and the important developments are often happening elsewhere. To the point where if you, you know, if you give me the opportunity of talking to a prime minister or talking to uh, a high-level officer in the intelligence services of a given country, I would choose the latter with, without any hesitation. Uh, so, you know, what it taught me is not, not to waste time with, with things that are uh, relatively unimportant and not central, uh, not to give too much importance, and not, essentially not, not to waste time. Uh, I kind of see immediately what's, uh, what's happening there and what meaning it can have, but usually the impulse comes from elsewhere. And not, of course, as, as educated in how an autocracy works, uh, and it may be mm -hmm. slightly different, although I suspect it is not radically different. Uh, but certainly in democracies, the impulse does not come from the top to the bottom. Uh, it comes from the bottom to the top. Right. right. So maybe the person you want to talk to is someone who is like high level enough, I don't know, right. perhaps a department head or something, where they have like a top level picture of a very specific area, but not so high that they're just getting, you know, third uh, level reports that have been flushed out of all the actual problems or un unexpected circumstances. Yeah, it has to be someone that moves in the real world, not in, in, in cabinets and in, in, in first class flights, uh, but that has enough power to, to have access to everything as he moves or she moves in the real world. Mm -hmm. uh, usually there are people like that, but there are not so many. Mm -hmm. It has to be something in the middle to some extent, as you said. Really interesting. So I'll, I'll ask another question. Charlie Aubrey asks, uh, it seems to me that the Chinese state project is essentially still modernist. Um, would you agree with that? And Western state construction seems to have lost, can no longer be, can no longer be modernist for reasons that we've been discussing, you know, the failure of universalism. Uh, and I think also implicitly here, sort of the postmodern philosophical developments. Um, and, and if so, so what would stop the Chinese state building project from failing for these same sort of postmodernist reasons, even despite its kind of authoritarian approach to cultural rel relativism? Right. Good question. Uh, yes, I, I described the, the political regime as essentially a, a, a modern society because it's a society that is essentially interested in mastering nature, in conquering nature, in, 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 in controlling nature through technology. Mm -hmm. And that's my definition of a modern society. Now, China is obsessed about, about this, uh, obsessed about mastering the natural environment. That is very clear in the case of COVID, of course. Uh, now, there's a question which I think is a genuine question of uh, what China will be able to do once it completely catch up with the West, because there's no doubt, not so much at the level of, of copying technology or, or, or importing knowledge, but at the level of providing a certain goal and drive to Chinese society, what seems to hold China's, Chinese society together is this goal of equaling the United States in the first half of the 21st century 
and uh, overcoming the United States in the second half. Uh, and that without this, it would be difficult to see what would uh, hold Chinese society together. So once these goals are approached or are close enough, uh, certainly one can imagine that Chinese society would, would lose its drive and it would lose its unifying power and, and it might enter a crisis. Uh, it's very obvious for those who, who live in China and, and talk to people in China. This is what, uh, in the end, decides uh, political questions. Uh, whatever helps China become number one is what is adopted. Uh, and this right. is, what, is what the discussion is about. Yeah, so it's just like sort of this this kind of relative orientation. It's 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 like in, in some sense almost mimetic, like like copying yeah. Yeah, or yeah. defining itself in reference to this sort of external power of the United States, and then just saying, "Oh well, we want to overcome that. We just want to be better better at what they're doing than they are." Uh, but without right. necessarily. So, so I don't th- I don't think it's it's mimetic to the point where they would be copying Google and not coming up with anything new, which they have by now. Not right. mimetic in that literal sense, but certainly mimetic in, in the substantial sense of uh, wanting to be as powerful and as successful as, as the United States, uh, mm-hmm. even if they find different ways to do that and certainly different technologies, uh, which they're quite capable of doing. I want to ask um, a follow-up here. Uh, we've discussed China and America quite a bit, but do you think of Russia as a modern state in this sense? Um, you know, on the one hand, I've seen analyses of Russia's political style, especially as postmodern. You know, you you somehow have like post-Soviet and Russian Orthodox and kind of revanchist currents all existing at once. This seems to be postmodern to a degree. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, Luka Yukic wrote recently at Palladium a fairly good analysis looking at how all these currents are kind of coming together in something like a Russian nation state, which actually is a very modern political form. So where does Russia fall in the spectrum for you? No, I also consider Russia fully a modern society. Um, that was the process uh, in the 19th century and in, in the first half of the 20th century. We should never forget that uh, modern societies come in many different shapes. Um, if we go back to the trajectory of modern society in the West, in, in Europe and the United States, there were many possibilities that were left unexplored. You know, you have to build a tree with, with, mm-hmm. with different paths, with forking paths. And it's just in the nature of historical development that Western societies, let's say in Europe, could not explore all the paths. So it's certainly the case that Russia explored a, a different path and it's still exploring a different path and China is exploring a different path. But they could have been our paths, incidentally. Uh, obviously, there was a lot of contingency here, uh, and many of the outcomes resulted from European wars that took things in a certain direction, and that perhaps could have been entirely different if the victor in the war had been someone else. So uh, modernity is certainly not a straight line. Uh, that's another uh, preconception that we have to get rid of. Uh, it's really a garden of forking paths, and Russia is somewhere in that garden. Russian society today is, is very different. But one can see, even if we go back to the tradition of political thought in the West, to these authors that I talked about at the beginning, one could see at some points it's quite easy to see possibilities that they are suggesting or exploring or sometimes just suggesting in passing. And they are possibilities that different political regimes have explored. Uh, and, and Russia is, is one of them. You could, you could try to figure some 
theoretical background for what is today's Russia uh, and looking back to even political thought in the West. It just happened that we didn't pick that, that path, but uh, Russia, for reasons that are in some, in some sense contingent, ended up where it did. It's sort of interesting kind of chasing on the, on the kind of like the way you've defined modernism uh, and, and the way you're describing it as, as like this garden of forking paths. The, but isn't, I'm not sure about this, but isn't the idea of, or w- one of these sort of major ideas of modernism is this kind of like determinism and scientific approach that, that there's sort of like one model, or is that just a, an artifact of kind of a liberal end of history project? Yeah. But like, like, is the idea that there's sort of these many different paths and that we sort of choose to go down one or the other, often contingently, isn't that more of a postmodern idea in a way? I think, uh, you know, if, if you are on one path, you're naturally inclined to think that's the only one. Mm-hmm. And in particular, if the societies that we're talking about become so powerful that they can actually impose their will on other societies, that does carry the disadvantage that you're not forced to think in different ways uh, and you do tend to regard others as, as being as, as failing. And that, of course, was the fate and, you know, in a way, the tragedy of the West of Europe and the United right. States throughout the 18th and 19th century, that this abundance of power uh, helped them close their minds to different possibilities. I believe that, in a way, started to change and not, not so recently, but probably decisively with, uh, with nuclear weapons. This is an idea I, I, I hear a lot in Russia, and, but it, it convinced me, I find it plausible, that the great equalizer has, has been nuclear, nuclear technology. Because suddenly, you know, the, the, um, whether you have the most sophisticated aircraft carriers or airplanes, it's important, but doesn't matter that much in the end. Um, because if the other side has nuclear weapons, it's essentially at the same level you are, even if their airplanes are much worse. Uh, so uh, the last 50, the last 70 years, there's been a process where, where Western power has receded. And that has the advantage that it opens our minds to different possibilities that we didn't have before. So I do think that linear understanding uh, is, is uh, understandable because uh, we always tend to think we're right and everyone else is wrong. And if we have enough power to actually not be forced, not be challenged by others, then it's very easy to conclude that. I'll move to another audience question then. So Jorge asks, um, I'll rephrase this slightly, uh, in order to have a political order that is not fragile to technology, how important is it that the state owns or controls the the major technologies, uh, the commanding heights of technology in, well, in the world now? I mean, practically, uh, we can see that even play out, you know, with, with this TikTok situation which is a strange thing to think about, but little things like social media apps are now geopolitical weapons. Is that state control necessary or can you have you know, resilience to technology even without it somehow? I think you're going to need a certain level of that, even if you don't like it, even if it's something you'd, you'd, you'd prefer uh, not, not, not to have to go down that path. Uh, but the reason seems to me, you know, the United States at the height of its powers was, was able to define the rules of globalization and the essential structure of the global system. And if you're able to do that, then you may well allow your companies and your technology to circulate freedom with, free, freely within the system because you control the system. Uh, and so indirectly, you end up controlling those companies and, and those sources of technology. 
But if you no longer control the system, if you're no longer able to define the rules, uh, if others feel powerful enough to violate those rules uh, or to even try to define the rules in a different way, then uh, you are no longer, you should, you should be very uneasy about allowing your companies, your sources of technology, your capital to circulate freely within a system you don't control. This very briefly, I think, is, the, is, is, is the, the, the current situation. The United States is discovering that it doesn't control the system. And so it's much more inclined to exercise control over those parts of its economy, um, its own companies, its own technology, so that it doesn't, in a way, uh, that, that it, it is not appropriated by others. So this leads inevitably to a level of technological nationalism. I think it's more or less inevitable. Well, and I think it's also a response from the fact that, you know, we're seeing the U.S. here, the U.S. government. In reality, we're talking about a variety of different agencies, institutions, political actors. You know, th there are obviously times in history when you have nationally owned technological innovation or uh, resurgence. But currently, it seems to be coming from something like a position of weakness. I, I basically think about the fact that in the mid-20th century, when America is going through a huge period of technological innovation, you have a fairly high degree of coordination between even the private firms and the American power structure. And then in addition, you obviously have direct state-owned initiatives like in NASA. Whereas today, you know, let's imagine that the U.S. government nationalizes Google tomorrow morning. This doesn't actually end up helping very much because huge portions of Google are openly hostile to the U.S. government. And so you need to do a complete restructuring of the thing itself. Uh, and, and so the, the question beneath nationalization seems to be to what extent do the technological power actors need to be coordinated with the political ones? in order for there to be resiliency. Like, do, do, you think, do you think that this fragility is, or, or seeing it as a sign of fragility is correct in that way? Right. Um, well, let, let me give you an example. If the United States were able to define, and by define, I, 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 you know, I mean implement and execute a set, a set of rules, let us say, about technology transfer and intellectual property, and, and really execute them even inside China, in that case, uh, it could define the rules that would favor its own interests, and then it would be very inclined to allow American companies to operate freely in China because they would be following the rules that the United States has decided. But if uh, what happens, as it's been happening now, is that China is actually able to define the rules under which American companies are going to operate. For example, that they have to transfer technology, that they have to establish joint ventures in China. Then sooner or later, and it didn't take more than five, seven years, um, uh, American decision makers are going to conclude that uh, they should no longer allow American companies to operate freely in China because they're not following the rules that America has decided. So I think there's this, there's this dialectic going on between your power to, to define the system and the freedom that you give to the system to operate. Mm -hmm. If the system is no longer yours, then uh, you, you are no longer, in a way, so much in favor of the rules-based order if you're not defining the rules. Right. Uh, I think this, these things look relatively simple to me, um, and they're not so much based on values, but just on the ability that America has today to 
impose its rules. And this could be uh, in technology, could be in the economy, but could also be in geopolitics, national security, uh, and so on. Here's another question um, from Stephen Pimentel. He asks, given that a post-liberal philosophy cannot simply replicate models drawn from the past, are there nonetheless elements of older cultures that are de-emphasized by liberalism that should be recovered in a post-liberal synthesis? Right. No, I entirely agree with that. So I don't think we should turn to sort of finished models that have been uh, adopted in the past, but we can certainly go back to uh, traditions that are interrupted. And precisely if we no longer believe in this inevitable flow of history towards a final destination, there's no reason we shouldn't appropriate traditions that were not fully explored and develop them further. And I think this is particularly relevant and contemporary in the case of India, uh, where much of what is happening is precisely uh, this project of recovering an Indian tradition that has been lost uh, and seeing what it can offer. Right. Uh, it also may be the case, we haven't talked so much about it, uh, that uh, there are different paths uh, of modernity that have not been explored, that modernity can be recreated anew. And mm. certainly in India, you see a lot of ambition in this direction, and it would be quite interesting for us to try to learn from some contemporary Indian uh, intellectuals and, um, and, and even politicians that are engaged in this kind of project. So I don't, uh, I don't disagree with that. I also... I even think that, um, in a way, this rebalancing of power that is happening globally uh, is going to allow for traditions that were uh, repressed directly or indirectly to now uh, come to the surface again. This was a big topic in my first book. Um, you know, traditions in, in Turkmenistan or Kazakhstan uh, had very little chance of, 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 of being actively adopted and developed because... Uh, they were either actively repressed from the outside, the Soviet Union, or their prestige was so limited compared to the prestige of Western ideas that they were abandoned. Uh, if Western ideas are not as dominant today, that may perhaps have the unexpected advantage that uh, traditions that are interrupted may have a possibility of, of having more space now. So that's not what I meant by the idea that we shouldn't adopt. Uh, um, I, I was particularly interested in not reopening battles from the past, um, not going back and, and, and fighting the, the war between religion and liberalism again. Right. So um, seeing the um, not, traditions but, in light, like see what the light of modernity, so to speak, casts on them, how they can, right. what they tell right. us today, something like right. that. So reopening history, but not repeating it. Uh, it's an right. interesting question. It's forcing me to think about, uh, obviously, there's a distinction here that I'm, I'm, I'm striving to make, but um, that would be the, the main idea, that we should reopen history, but not repeat it again. I've got some follow-up on this, Ash. Um, so I think, I think the distinction you're making is, is, is a sound one, basically, like the difference between just trying to sort of take this completed system from the past and go back to what you sort of you mentioned the catholic or reactionary impulse there um versus i think what we're talking about here is something more like mining the past for particular insights or particular social technologies or particular orientations that that were abandoned but but are no, they don't constitute sort of a, a a coherent system as much as like little parts that you can take um and i have in mind here things like you know ideas like teleology right? Like what's sort of the overall order of the universe and so on. Like we, maybe we can start talking about that again. 
ideas like dharma or natural law, you know, speaking of the India example or a Western example, sort of the idea of deriving morality from kind of your role in this larger organic system that has this sort of natural way of doing things. Other, other things, you know, ideas around the family, ideas around fraternity. There's sort of all these ways that, that liberalism has, has kind of reduced these questions to just questions of like, what's the law about, about how you're allowed to treat other people as kind of like political equals and so on. But, but you, if you open things up beyond that, you, you find all these sort of older ideas become interesting again. Mm-hmm. But, and, and, and by the way, there's a difference between, let us say, uh, actually Catholicism is something that liberalism actively engaged with for two centuries. Right. We should be more interested, I think, uh, in those traditions that liberalism completely ignored. Uh, that's, I think, where it, there's going to be a real wealth to be mined, not in paths that are already taken, but in paths that were not taken. What do you have in mind there? Well, again, India, I think, uh, you know, all, all, all this is, um, you know, I'm captivated by this idea that Indian traditions it's, have simply disappeared um, because it's a civilization that was uh, subject to uh, uh, a, a, a external invasion for um, perhaps uh, 600, 700 years. Uh, right. Uh, successive waves of, uh, of invaders that were quite interested in uh, actively destroying those traditions. Uh, so it's going to be it's going to take a long time, uh, but both Indians and 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 other people that are interested in this uh, have an enormous reservoir of um, four or five thousand years of uh, extraordinary cultural political wealth uh, right. that we barely know about. Right, and, and the particular Indians don't know about the, the particular traditions there being sort of like the the old Hindu, the Vedic, the Buddhist kind of traditions. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm particularly interested in, in, in Hindu traditions, uh, so I've started to read a little bit of Vivekananda, uh, and there's interesting uh, uh, books being published on him uh, recently over the last two years in India that help you get into it. Mm-hmm. It's extraordinarily sophisticated, and uh, it's, it's something that we're just not sufficiently aware of. It's a, it's a challenge to modernity as a whole uh, of enormous sophistication. Uh, so it's uh, well worthwhile uh, spending some time with that. Uh, right. Uh, but there, there, you know, there are many other examples that one could give. Uh, so much that has been lost precisely because of this, of this sense that we're moving in a straight line towards the future and everything around could, could be ignored. Yeah, I think an important aspect of this is that traditions that were outside of liberalism and its battles, um, you know, rather than just seeing how modernity or how liberalism can view those traditions. Maybe if we flip that uh, relationship, let's see how they view liberalism. This can give us different accounts for how modernity itself unfolds. Um, you know, even even within Catholicism, which you've mentioned, right? Uh, the, the church demographically now, a, a huge bulk of its population is in the global South. So people who in their, you know, ancestral lineages and their cultures were not, you know, rather than just looking at them through the lens of modernity, you can kind of flip that relationship. You know, you can perhaps develop different accounts of liberalism or of modernity itself by looking at what these traditions have to say about it. And I, I was kind of making the point as well that even within the Catholic Church, which, as you point out, has this historic relationship, the demographic surge in the Catholic Church is now in the global South among populations that were left out of liberalism as historical actors. And even the current Pope, 
is, is kind of bringing these peripheries to the fore, is, is confounding some of the dichotomies that we're used to. The, the other interesting element that I see here is what I think at Palladium called neo-traditionalisms before. So I recall a piece that was written about Japan and how, mm. uh, you know, the chronology of Japan, these era names that they have based on the emperors were in the past based on Chinese classical literature, but are today uh, Japanese. And so they've actually, you know, you, w- this can be presented as like a more a return to some kind of a tradition, but in fact, it's a modern development. And so you, you get these modern things that are presented as traditions, but are not. Both of these, I think, are very useful for this kind of project. We can go on to another question. Uh, Vitalik has a second question here. Is the EU's future an either or question? Uh, it seems like a future of both stability and lower relevance seems likely. So how do you see the EU's future here? Right. I said already that I, I, I still find it uh, quite ambiguous. Um, and you saw that this ambiguity during COVID. Uh, on the one hand, uh, the first uh, month or two months were uh, uh, tragic uh, uh, and the you know European countries seemed... Uh, both uh, culturally and politically and economically and prepare for it. Uh, but in the meantime, um, they have gotten their act together and Europe today might actually have a claim to being the, 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 the region of the world that responded better to COVID. Uh, ended up achieving the same outcomes that China achieved with much less uh, social cost um, and much less individual pain. Um, so in terms of political control uh, and in terms of just overstepping individual rights uh, that happened in China, as we know, during the pandemic. So Europe is still responding well. Uh, now the question is whether this is sustainable because developments continue to point in the direction of increasing uh, geopolitical trouble, increasing fragility, increasing division. Uh, and so I remain fundamentally a skeptic. Um, and uh, if we look at um, the, the process has been slow, but if you're attentive and following it closely, it does seem that things get a little, a little more delicate every year. Uh, and I tweeted this week that, you know, we used to talk a lot about how Europe was increasingly surrounded by a ring of instability. Uh, one EU official, I can't remember exactly whom, said that maybe around 10 years ago that Europe should struggle to create a ring of friends around uh, the European Union. And then someone made the point um, uh, five years ago that the ring of friends was turning into a ring of fire because essentially every country around the EU, with the exception um, uh, until a month ago of Morocco and Belarus, uh, were engulfed in instability. Now Belarus has joined that club. Uh, and it's quite striking that when we used to talk about how um, Europe's neighbors were either unstable or even at war, that the instability at Europe's borders was increasing. We used to mean Iraq, we used to mean Syria, which are not immediate neighbors of the EU. Now, actually, we see instability uh, right at the border, 500 meters from the Polish border. We see instability in the Eastern Mediterranean with conflict between uh, Greece and, and Turkey uh, becoming more acute by the day. So we do get, get a sense that Europe is being sort of 
strangled, increasingly unable to respond to problems in its immediate neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And if on top of that you add uh, China, which has become a considerable power inside Europe, and if you add the difficult relationship with the United States, uh, you do start to worry uh, about how sustainable this way of life is. Uh, wonderful as it is at present, I think Europe has been able to the European Union, to me, represents the project of preserving the best of the European tradition while getting, getting rid of the worst of that tradition. And so the current moment is a very um, favorable moment, but I remain convinced that without fundamental changes, it can't um, become really sustainable over the, over mm-hmm. the medium long term. Uh, how about one more question from the audience, and then we can wrap it up. Toby Lehman asks... Does the intense LARPing solution that you describe uh, uh, sort of to the American contradiction, does that run the risk of turning too real and and ending up sort of destabilizing the system? And would that sort of endanger the American experiment or or what do you think? I only got the the last part, but I think the question was uh, sort of this sense of of simulation of the theme park runs the risk of of, of turning into reality, into an ugly reality. Well, I think... um, that that risk exists. The opposite risk also exists. Uh, the experiences have to be immersive. This is why the language of virtual reality, I think, has mm-hmm. become so important uh, politically. Uh, one can almost develop a complete political philosophy using those terms. Um, what you want to have is fully immersive experiences that never turn into reality. And I think... Uh, uh, you know, one could perhaps come up with, uh, I, I, I seem to remember lots of very good and, and, and very interesting movies whose theme was uh, the danger that you have of, of being in prison inside a virtual reality system or inside a computer game, for example. I remember, can't come up with the titles now, but I remember uh, there's one particularly good one where there's a virtual reality game that you play, uh, but then you run the risk of not being able to get out of it, um, being being uh, imprisoned inside. Um, maybe you've seen this as well, but I can't remember which one it is. I'll have to Google it. Uh, so obviously, uh, there's a risk in America today, which can be discussed uh, almost using these terms. We don't need Locke anymore. We don't need Montesquieu anymore. We can just use these terms from technology and virtual reality in particular. There's a danger today of, of the simulation turning into reality, of being unable to escape it. Uh, I think, you know, if I, if I had written a 600-page book instead of a 200-page one, uh, I would have to try to do what Thomas Hobbes did or John Locke did to suggest uh, an institutional framework that would be able to create immersive experiences but still prevent them from turning into, into reality. Um, I think the American system is already relatively well equipped to do this. Uh, so it has uh, some institutions and procedures in place that will prevent Donald Trump from actually becoming a dictator. Uh, and he has uh, some institutions in place that will prevent the religious right from coming into power. But it also has some institutions in place that create the possibility for truly immersive experiences. So we don't have the same attempt that you have in Europe to uh, have a a public civic education system that would uh, attempt to turn every uh, religious community into a liberal community. The Supreme Court in particular 
uh, already starting in the 70s, was concerned with creating the space for religious communities to live almost uh, as if uh, they were living in a theocratic state, although they were not. So the idea of the simulation uh, was present there. Kind of an exit uh, within borders, a higher toleration for it. That, that's, that's right. Uh, so you, you need a right to exit, but uh, if you are inside that particular community, you should have the ability to experience that uh, life form fully and, and, and with depth. And in Europe, there's really no interest to do this. Uh, it's not even regarded particularly as a value. Uh, I think guns laws and, uh, and, 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 and um, Supreme Court decisions on religion, the death penalty, they all show there is already a certain institutional framework in America that is really aimed at creating uh, a deeper kind of, of, of experience uh, outside the liberal paradigm. And now you have, I think, to fully develop this institutional framework. Uh, uh, it would be good if, uh, if other people got interested in this project and one could, first of all, develop uh, a fully-fledged theory of what we're trying to do here and then start to develop a, a kind of an institutional framework that could be grafted on top of what is already there and start to push the American regime in the direction of something like this, uh, which is a, a, a promising uh, possibility for a political regime. Um, you know, Sometimes I, I am convinced that this could happen, uh, and this is actually happening already. Uh, you know, we see uh, in the news every day uh, what is happening on, on the far left. You know, what is happening with the New York Times uh, editorial board and the op-ed pages is in a way quite similar to what to the solutions that were found for uh, religious communities in America. You might want uh, the New York Times to be uh, to exclude other ways of thinking so that you can create within the New York Times a higher level of conviction in a number of ideas. Um, and you're not trying to build neutral ways of life where everything is the same. Um, so why not try to develop this and accept it? I'm not so disturbed by the idea that New York Times might become uh, hostile to different ways of thinking, provided the American society as a whole has many different experiences and they are not seen as contradictory what is the problem if the new york times becomes limited in its outlook uh in a way it might be a good thing if they give up their pretensions to neutrality and universality right. uh, and right. other newspapers and other communities will pursue other possibilities uh, the model for me is in a way a theme park perhaps even better you know the movies or television uh, each channel is pursuing a, a certain possibility and they all live together in the sort of the television framework is very capacious. And uh, in the movies, uh, different human possibilities are explored. Each movie pursues one. What does not make sense is for a character in a movie, let's say, particularly in a Hollywood movie that wants to be entertaining, not to make up his mind or her mind about what, what he wants to be or she wants to be. You know, imagine a movie where uh, we don't know if this is a nurse or a scientist or uh, uh, a sex worker, uh, she hasn't decided. No, you know, each movie pursues one possibility to the end, and then another movie will pursue another possibility. And I kind of imagine a society that could be American society of the future where different possibilities are being pursued to the end fully in different places of American society, and that's not seen as contradictory. Um, that's the love of, of fiction, of... of, uh, of um, unreality in a way where you don't have to bring everything into the same um, 
the same kind of uh, baseline, uh, which I think is the liberal project to bring everything into the same baseline. Interesting. That's really interesting. I think that's a good place to, to end, yeah. given that we're out of time. But we'll have to think about that uh, a lot more. Interesting thread to pull on. So, Bruno, thanks so much for joining us. This was a really interesting discussion. Uh, I think we'd love to have you back. Uh, it's uh, it's about 2.30 here, where I am, 2.30 in the morning. And I think you could see that in my last answer. We're really glad you were able to stay up and us. join us for so long. It, it has been an yeah. awesome discussion. So Bruno's new book is History Has Become, The Birth of a New America. Special thanks to all of our Palladium members and our audience for the great questions. To become a member and get invited to upcoming salons, visit us at palladiummag.com slash subscribe. Remember to subscribe to Palladium Magazine on YouTube and follow us on Twitter at Palladium Mag. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time.